Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Allwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're heading back to the Hyborian Age to loot Robert E. Howard's The Tower of the Elephant. Before we get into all that felonious stuff, however, what is going on? Well, just a few days from the release of this episode, if you turn your clocks back 40 years to a dark and stormy night, a Halloween night, there was the first release of a game that we know and love very well, Call of Cthulhu. Now, 40 years old. I might have a little bit of trouble trying to turn the dial back that far because I'd be minus two. <laughs> ah. Yeah, very true. Well, you've seen Back to the Future, Matt. Well, that's frightening, isn't it, Paul? Because you and I, we started, I guess, not too long after that. You started with the Games Workshop 2nd Edition as well, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, the game had been around a few years when I played it. I think it, I didn't start right. playing it until about 86, I think. So it's a few years on. Yeah, it was 83 for me. So, yeah, a couple more years and I'll have been playing it for 40 years. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Chaosium have released their new 40th anniversary edition as well. A very nice black binding. At the time of recording, I've yet to uh, to see an actual copy, but uh, I've seen pictures online, which look pretty cool. Yeah, those, what are they, sort of sigils on the front? Yeah, it's just fantastically evocative. Mm. It feels like the kind of role-playing book that you'll be able to open up and summon real entities with. Well, let's hope so. I want to get my money's worth, so hell yeah, I definitely want something turning up when I read it. And speaking of blasphemous tomes... Ah, what a link. Yeah, it's coming around to that time again. We've got issue eight of the blasphemous tome about to wing its way to people. In about a month's time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we're playing around with all this timey-wimey stuff, so don't have to be specific. <laughs> it's limbering up its wings at the moment, preparing for the flight around the world. And we are at this stage preparing the text, writing the last bits of it and going through the listener submissions that we've had come in. And thank you very much to everyone who has sent us stuff. We're not sure we're going to be able to use everything in this issue because, dear God, you've sent us a lot of fantastic stuff this time around. But if we can't squeeze it into this tome, there will be another one along in six months. So if you're happy for us to do that, we'll, we certainly won't let it go to waste. And one quick last-minute edition, I will be doing a live stream with Ain't Slayed Nobody this week. So if you're listening to this when it goes out, there is just time to catch it. This is totally not a cult gathering. This is our Halloween improvisational special, much like we did with the Green Pumpkin last year. And it will go out on Wednesday, October the 27th, between 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 8 to 11 p.m. BST. You can find it on the Ain't Slade Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Ain't and we'll also be streaming on Enslaved Nobody's YouTube channel and then be on demand there and also as a podcast episode later on on the Enslaved Nobody feed. And now on to our main topic, the Tower of the Elephant. 
Well, now that we've spent a couple of episodes talking about Robert E. Howard and his work, we thought we'd cap things off by actually digging into one of his classic Conan stories. The Tower of the Elephant was one of the earliest Conan stories, appearing in the March 1933 edition of Weird Tales. It's also one of the first Howard stories published in book form, in the 1946 Arkham House collection Skull Face and Others. This was the third Conan story published by Weird Tales. Readers had been introduced to Conan as the King of Aquilonia in The Phoenix on the Sword. The Scarlet Citadel then portrayed Conan as a middle-aged mercenary. The Tower of the Elephant went back further to the teenage Conan, a young thief. While Conan himself is young in the story, this is arguably the first mature Conan story. The Phoenix and the Sword started out as a King Cole story, which Howard retooled and rewrote for this new character he had in mind. And the next few stories that he wrote, there were a few unpublished ones before The Tower of the Elephant, were still pretty much sounding out the character. But here, I think, for the first time, we see a fully developed Conan, as well as a fair bit of world-building. While it's not being filmed, this is still the most adapted Howard story, the basis for many comics, video games, and RPG adventures. Wasn't there two different versions of this for the Conan RPG, or iterations of Conan? I think so, and yeah, it has turned up in multiple video games and multiple comics. Yeah, this is an extremely... I was about to say an extremely popular story. I think one of the reasons why it's been adapted so many times is it's one of the simpler ones. I think it's probably easier for people who are less familiar with the character to get a grip on. You know, you say it hasn't been filmed. It hasn't literally been filmed, this whole story. But we see in Conan the Barbarian, the the 82, is it, film with with, with Arnie, mm. we see something I think is, is strongly inspired by this. We see them scaling the tower. Uh, this is where he meets Valeria for the first time, meeting a thief outside. And then uh, they break into this tower by scaling up the side of it. I think it's, it's very inspired by this uh, great portrayal of the the outside, at least, of the Tower of the Elephant, if what happens inside is somewhat different. Yeah, I mean, Oliver Stone lifted all sorts of little bits from various Conan stories there. Valeria, for example, actually comes from Red Nails. Hmm. But it's a mishmash of lots of different things that somehow manages to feel like none of them. Howard continued to write and publish Conan stories in the order that they occurred to him, rather than following any particular chronology. The scholars and editors have since constructed a number of conflicting reading orders, which are often confused by the inclusion of Conan stories from other writers. I'll link to a few of them from the show notes, but yeah, trying to work out a chronological order to read these in, I think, is difficult for a start, and also pointless because that wasn't what Howard intended. Howard only completed 21 Conan stories, Although this includes a novel, The Hour of the Dragon, and a number of novellas, 17 were published in his lifetime, the rest first appearing in anthologies decades later. He also left a number of story fragments, some later completed by other writers. Not quite as bad as Durlis' posthumous collaborations, because these were actually story fragments rather than just one-line entries in the commonplace book. But still, they're not quite the real thing. And now let's dig into the story of the Tower of the Elephant. 
Torches flared murkily on the revels in the mall, where the thieves of the East held carnival by night. In the mall, they could carouse and roar as they liked, for honest people shunned the quarters, and watchmen, well paid with stained coins, did not interfere with their sport. Along the crooked, unpaved streets, with their heaps of refuse and sloppy puddles, drunken roisterers staggered, roaring. Steel glinted in the shadows, where wolf preyed upon wolf, and from the darkness rose the shrill laughter of women and the sounds of scufflings and strugglings. Yeah, I love that opening paragraph. It just paints a great picture. Just some of his little phrases like his two word phrases with an adjective just describing something so the the watchmen are paid with coins but they're stained coins yeah you know that that just paints such a picture you know what they stained with presumably blood and so on a bit later on in that we get a reference to rough tables the tables that they're drinking and, and so on they're made of like this rough wood and it's just such an economy of language that he uses but it's so rich in imagery i think it's great well, and also eclectic language, there was a phrase that he used, or a word particularly that he used in this opening segment, not not in the bit I just read, but a little bit further on, where he talks about drinking jacks. Mm, yeah. I was reading that and realised that I'd never really encountered the phrase anywhere else, so I googled it, and it turns out that this is actually an Elizabethan phrase that somehow he must have stumbled across at some stage, that a jack was an Elizabethan term for just a drinking vessel, sort of like a tankard. Somehow, in his voluminous reading, he'd absorbed this word and brought it into this story. Mm. The story opens in the Mall, a rough and lawless district of an unnamed city in Zamora. Howard called it the City of Thieves in his correspondence, and Elsprag de Camp named it Arenion, if I'm getting the pronunciation right. Yeah, I don't know. I would have said Arenion, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he named it Arenion when he published it in book form. It's not hard to see the parallels between this opening and the violent anarchy of the Texas oil boom towns where Howard grew up. Yeah, it definitely does sound quite evocative. It's definitely got a life to it. Mm. Yeah, but it's just this place where there are pools of nameless liquids and street fights going on and obviously prostitution and seedy bars. And it really does sound like the descriptions I've read of, of the boom towns, the oil boom towns in Texas at the time. The young Conan is drinking in a tavern. He overhears a people trafficker mention a mysterious jewel called the Heart of the Elephant the source of the power of a sorcerer-priest named Yara. Yeah, this character he overhears it from is described as, what, what is it, sort of a professional kidnapper. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, it is very much what we consider to be a people trafficker these days. I mean, he sounds like a fantastically seedy, unpleasant character. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, he's uh, sought out some woman to capture and sell to some rich man somewhere. When Conan asks why no one has ever broken into the sorcerer's tower and stolen this jewel, this man mocks and belittles him. Bad, bad move. The Sumerian glared about, embarrassed at the roar and mocking laughter that greeted this remark. He saw no particular humour in it and was too new to civilization to understand its discourtesies. 
Civilised men are more discourteous than savages because they know they can be impolite without having their skulls split, as a general thing. (laughs) I think that's one of the most famous quotations from the Conan stories, and I think for good reason. It's certainly one I've seen reproduced more than I think any other. Yeah, I mean, Lovecraft and Howard had a big discussion, ongoing discussion, about the pros and cons of civilised men compared with kind of barbarians or, or whatever. They both kind of argued that, oh, no, I didn't really mean this. But basically, um, Lovecraft was on the side of the civilised man and Howard was on the side of the barbarians more. But that kind of comes through in, his, in, in these uh, numerous times in this story, I think. There's also a good description of Conan here that we get his powerful frame, the broad, heavy shoulders, the massive chest, lean waist and heavy arms. So, uh, yeah, we're getting a, a good picture of this big barbarian fella. I would argue not a million miles what we see in, in the film. Mm, no, I, I disagree. Arnie's physique is very much a bodybuilder's physique. It doesn't seem to be a fighter's physique. I mean, we've discussed this enough already, but I don't think you will ever convince me that Arnie is Conan in any conceivable respect. I'm just quoting the words that Howard wrote, Scott. (laughs) Yeah, but he doesn't describe him as being a bodybuilder with not an ounce of fat on him and... Well, he says, heavy broad shoulders, massive chest, lean waist, heavy arms. Lean implying not very fat. The difference is that bodybuilders very deliberately construct their diets in such a way that they avoid any subcutaneous fat, so the skin follows the contour of the muscles. Now, people who actually develop muscles through fighting or physical labour don't have musculatures like that. That is peculiar to bodybuilders. It looks so, I don't know, artificial that... It does nothing for my suspension of disbelief. It's probably the least of my problems with Arnie's portrayal of Conan, but it is another one to add to the list. Well, anyway, as the argument escalates, the man shoves Conan, knocking over a candle, and when the light is restored, the man is dead and Conan is gone. Wasting no time, Conan makes his way through the night to the Temple District, offering Howard the opportunity to explain Conan's beliefs. His gods were simple and understandable. Krom was their chief, and he lived on a great mountain, whence he sent forth dooms and death. It was useless to call on Krom, because he was a gloomy, savage god, and he hated weaklings. But he gave a man courage at birth, and the will and might to kill his enemies, which in the Sumerian's mind, was all any god should be expected to do. Conan contemplates the dangers ahead. Yara, the sorcerer of the tower, is feared by all, including the king of Zamora. The heart gives him power. Yara once used it to transform an enemy prince into a spider, there's a bit of foreshadowing, and crush him underfoot. Arriving at Yara's tower, a slim, perfect cylinder, 150 feet in height, and its rim glittered in the starlight with the great jewels which crusted it. Conan wonders why it is called the Tower of the Elephant. Clambering over the wall, Conan enters the gardens where he finds the freshly strangled body of one of the guards. Looking around, he spies the shadowy form of a man skulking in the undergrowth. Conan follows him, but is spotted in turn. Guess who rolled double zero on their stealth check? (laughs) Hmm. 
I suppose if you're wandering around like Arnie, you'd probably have a penalty die on those kind of rolls. And again, this is why Arnie is such a shitty Conan, because Conan in the stories is lithe and panther-like and and swift and able to move silently and cunning, and Arnie is meat. (laughs) But we see with this friend that he meets, he belies that description, because we would think that a thief, as he's about to meet, would be lithe and slim and uh but the thief that he meets is actually described as being big bellied and fat but still nimble as fuck yeah so i think size i think it's it's wrong to think that big people can't be silent oh no but it's not that it's just that the way that arnie portrays him in the film is as a lumbering ox no he does he sneaks around at times he sneaks around into places you're just obsessed with Arnie, Scott. He's not. He's not. Doesn't fit the role. I think you're. You're on your own there. But I am happy to be on my own here, Good. because I know I'm right. Well, yeah, you carry on. Stranger turns out to be a fellow thief, as we said, Taurus of Namedia, the Prince of Thieves. He too has come to Yara's tower to steal the heart of the elephant. The two men decide to team up. This just does feel like two player characters meeting, doesn't it? Because. There's very little in the way of suspicion or anything. I mean, there's a little bit, but it's it's just sort of, well, you're here to rob the place, I'm here to rob the place, let's team up and do crime. Yeah, I mean, we see this in a few Conan stories, don't we, where he just sort of meets somebody randomly whilst, well, I won't say on a mission, but, you know, in the story, and they just kind of team up. This story does feel quite D&D-ish to me, mm. as we're about to encounter some monsters and uh, and so on. Approaching the inner walled garden, Taurus warns that there are other, more dangerous guards. Searching the gloom, Conan sees the eyes of several lions watching him. Taurus baits the lions, and as they come forward, he produces a blowpipe and blows a puff of powder over them, killing them instantly. Conan asks what was in the pipe. It was made from the black lotus, whose blossoms wave in the lost jungles of Gatai where only the yellow-skulled priests of Yun dwell. Those blossoms strike dead any who smell of them. You know, as a Magic the Gathering player, I think I would have died of heart failure if I'd realised that I'd been hit with a puff of dust made from the broken-up remains of a black lotus. (laughs) But the black lotus turns up in Call of Cthulhu. It turns up all over the place, but this is where it starts. This is the origin. Mm. Mm. Killer drug but also one that can allow you to see through time. Hmm. We'll come across a a variant of this later on in the story, but there are other lotuses with other effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you can have a lotus petal that you can tap for one colourless mana rather than three. (laughs) Arriving at the base of the impossibly smooth tower, Taurus plans to bypass the guards within by climbing it and produces a grappling hook. He even has a bag of holding. Conan spots a surviving lion just as it pounces. His quick reflexes save them, and Conan splits the beast's skull with his sword. It would have been a lot cooler just to grab it by the jaws and rip, but... uh... (laughs) Yes, but perhaps a bit less realistic. (laughs) Realism? You think think that has a place here? Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think it does in that it's like with the Lovecraft stories where by uh, portraying the base details realistically and not getting too fanciful with that, you're then providing the uh, the groundwork to make the fantastical ones more believable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because there are certainly fantastical bits coming. The men begin their ascent. Now, I will note here that Taurus has thrown his rope up like a grappling hook, but surely rope only comes in 50-foot increments. This is 150 (laughs) foot. It's all the more impressive when you learn what it's made of. Oh, well, most certainly, we're about to discuss. So the men begin their ascent, and when Conan asks if the rope will support their weight, Taurus explains, It was woven from the tresses of dead women, which I took from their tombs at midnight and steeped in the deadly wine of the upas tree to give it strength. How fucking cool is this guy? Yeah. It's like he's a multi-class thief alchemist, isn't he? A necromancer or something. He's going around robbing graves and yeah. taking hair and, and winding into magical artifacts. I mean, this is a yeah. D&D artifact we got right here and, and the recipe to make it. Well, that and the Black Lotus mm. powder and so on, yeah, which he also... Well, no, he procured that. Mm. He didn't make it himself. You see, for, for me, I'm getting a two interpretations here one from film thinking of i remember the character's name like maybe Remoir or rembrandt from cube the impressive escape artist that broke out of any prison and uh, they're kind of bigging him up in the scene listing off all his achievements and then the other interpretation i'm thinking of is the gm suddenly realizing that shit conan's supposed to be the main player character here and he's been overshadowed by my big bad npc that's got all this glory i better rein this in a bit Yeah, well, not for long. (laughs) Reaching the top, the men find that the tower is indeed rimmed with precious jewels. Conan is tempted by all these diamonds and rubies and emeralds that he can see up there, but Taurus insists that these are nothing compared to the heart of the elephant which lies within. Taurus tells Conan to go and check over the edge and make sure that no one below has spotted them and is following them, while Taurus goes ahead and scouts inside the tower itself. Conan is a little suspicious of this in his motivations, but agrees. Moments later, Conan hears a strangled cry from within. Investigating, he finds Taurus dead. Three small necrotic wounds in his throat. Beyond the body, Conan sees a golden door to an opulent chamber filled with riches. He approaches with caution. And this is why I said that this is potentially a bit reminding me a bit of Cube. They big the guy up and the next scene he's dead in one go. Right, yes, yes. That is bringing back memories, yeah. You can see Conan making his detect traps roll at this scene. And it does feel like like a combination of uh, D&D and a scene from an Indiana Jones film with him just thinking about poison darts and, no, it can't be that. Oh, yeah, he's going through the list of things that most players would go through in their head as they enter this place, what it might be that, that caused these wounds and caused this death and so on. Among chests of jewels, Conan spies a fast-moving shadow that suddenly springs towards him. This is a giant spider fangs dripping venom conan and the beast faint and dodge neither landing a blow the spider has an advantage however spinning ropes of webbing conan's foot becomes tangled but he saves himself by hurling a chest at the spider crushing it now all this bollocks about attack rolls and whiffing this idea of missing well they do that right here in the fiction but then he he lands a hit (laughs) with the chest 
But the difference is that all this whiffing takes a paragraph. If this were a D&D game and you were having a fight like that, it would have gone on for 20 minutes with, no, I missed. No, I missed. No, I missed. <laughs> you can't buy entertainment like that, can you? That's where the fun is. <laughs> it, it does remind me of the adage I've used to describe combat in unknown armies before, which is, miss, 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 dead. I'm also reminded of your story, Paul, about wanting to throw a sword in D&D. Mm. And, yeah, this improvised weapon. It's not even a sword. It's, it's, it's like a, a box that he finds and throws at it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's heavy because it's filled with jewels, and so it's obviously a good thing to crush the spider with. But I can just see the kind of shitty GMs that I played with as a teenager going, well, no, you don't have a weapon specialization in thrown chest. You can't do mm. that. That sounds really good. But the rules say no. <laughs> Conan sees a silver staircase going down and follows it. He hears nothing below, but smells a curious exotic odor carried up on wisps of smoke. On the next level down, Conan finds an ivory door and opens it, revealing a large chamber inlaid with jade and ivory the air filled with incense. A strange figure sits upon a couch, apparently asleep. The image had the body of a man, naked and green in colour, but the head was one of nightmare and madness. Too large for the human body, it had no attributes of humanity. Conan stared at the wide, flaring ears, the curling proboscis, on either side of which stood white tusks tipped with round golden balls. Now, I'm guessing Robert E. Howard, at some point in his reading, had encountered something about Ganesh, because it just seems like too big a coincidence with a lot of the other imagery that he's throwing in here, that this isn't at least inspired by some representation of Ganesh. The land in which this takes place, Zamora, I've seen... Different people talking about it as being either an analogue for North Africa or an analogue for perhaps parts of India. And certainly a lot of the incense and the decorations and so on have got, I guess, a sort of an Asian feel, maybe a Near Eastern feel. So, you know, I think he's, he's working a lot of these things together in his historical mishmash. But this, I think, also brings in one of the problems with the Conan stories, at least one of the problems that I have, in that Howard is very reductive in the way that he portrays different societies. Conan travels from place to place, and the people within a particular nation or a particular city all generally seem to share the same attributes. They are all untrustworthy, or they are all brutish, or they are all sort of scheming. I think there is this really unfortunate aspect to them that generally the darker the colour of the people's skins are, the more untrustworthy or brutish they are in the Conan stories. You can pretty much map a colour scale onto personality traits within the Hyborian Age stories. Mm. When I was rereading them a few years back, this was the single biggest problem I had with them. There were, there were other problems, particularly to do with the portrayal of women in the stories, but this was by far the biggest one. In this story, I'm 
this is one of the foundational Conan stories. He starts off talking about how evil the people of Zamora are and so on, that there is something inherent about the place or something inherent about the people that does seem to be, well, racial. And it's quite uncomfortable. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think far less so in this story than in, in many of them. Oh, it's certainly there, there are much, much worse ones later. Oh, dear God, there yeah. are worse ones later. I read this story aloud to Lucy last night while she was playing on, uh, I think she was playing, uh, what she's playing, Civilization or something. And it, it really struck me how much she uses alliteration. So just on one page, I've just underlined a, a few of them. You've got the monster's mercy, the massive missile, the slime spattered, the silver steps. Hmm. There's a lot of things that it, when you read it aloud, it, it does kind of come to life. It's And those alliterations kind of really work quite effectively, I think. Good use of language and so on. Maybe that comes from his poetry as well. Well, and also, as we mentioned a couple of episodes ago, when Howard was writing these things, banging away on his typewriter, he was speaking mm. them aloud or shouting them aloud as he wrote them. So it does really have that spoken quality to it. Yeah, as we see portrayed in the film, you know, Whole Wide World. Conan is shocked, believing himself face to face with a demon of the Elder World. As he stands paralysed, the creature stirs, probing the air with its trunk and speaks. It believes him to be Yara and asks if he has come to torture it again. Moved by the torture wounds on the creature's flesh, Conan speaks, explaining he's only a thief. When the creature asks him to come closer, he does so and lets the blind creature examine him with its trunk. This allows the creature to discern Conan's character and recent activities, as well as his physical form. The creature decides Conan is its deliverance and shares its story. The ancient transcosmic being known as Yagkosha or Yoga came to Earth from the green planet Yag, flying through space on mighty wings. It and its companions have watched millennia of human history, the rise and fall of countless empires, never interfering. Hmm, a race that came to Earth flying from a distant planet that has now, uh, now lost its wings and can no longer leave? Uh, Dumbo. But this is written before At the Mountains of Madness, isn't it? Must be. But not before the Whisper in Darkness. Right, yes, yes. Although, do we get that concept? Does he talk about them there? Yeah, the Miko do fly through space on membranous wings, and the, the Whisper in Darkness flying from Yogath. But they haven't lost their wings, have they? Whereas the, the older things, no. their wings, they've still got them, but they, they can't bear them through space anymore or whatever. They're, they're unable to fly through space True. any longer. So it, it does seem to parallel, not necessarily that one influenced by the, the other. But. but I'm sure that was Lovecraft's influence there. I, I can't believe for a moment it's not. Also, another eldritch being I can't help but think of, Dumbo. You were thinking that too, right, Matt? Oh, well, yeah, I said. <laughs> Who needs wings when you've got ears? Yeah. Yoga's companions are now dead, and it has fallen under the control of Yara, once its student. Yara uses Yoga's power to remain immortal. Yoga begs Conan to be its instrument of release and vengeance. 
fuck me. Why does Howard have to start every character name in this with why? You've got this whole bit where you're talking about yoga or Yag Kosha from the planet Yag and his interactions with Yara. If this were a game, you know the players would be getting all these names confused with each other. It'd be Yogg-Sothoth coming from the planet Yara, and uh, by the end of it, it would just be yada, yada, yada. There's only two characters here, Scott, <laughs> Yara and Yoga. I mean, I can see they both start with a Y. One of the characters has two names and comes from a planet that also begins with Y. Yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. I... You get all that in like one paragraph. It's, yeah, it's too much. No, I didn't find it uh, too much. I mean... I will say when I was reading Red Nails, I guess he didn't have that problem. But I did get confused with who was who and what was what in that. Red Nails is a much more complex plot. Yeah. It has multiple characters. It has scheming. But it has a lot of names that they're different, but I don't know. They're all, I don't know. They all feel a bit like things out of the Ikea catalogue. They're more kind of Aztec names. Yeah, to be fair, that wasn't very accurate. Just what I meant was there are a lot of unfamiliar names that don't really just don't stand out differently enough in my mind when i'm reading it and i'm, I'm just getting confused with some of the references is in that story they all should be called bob and john and so on that would be easier no i'm not saying that but i'm just saying that in that story there seemed to be a lot of exposition and a lot of stuff about other characters that weren't there and, and so on whereas this one's quite simple you've got like a very limited number of characters i didn't get confused about who was who in this one for me, that's also the weakness of this story. I mean, I think we'll come to that at the end. It's a very simple, straightforward story, an easy one to get into, but it doesn't have any of the features that I love about the more substantial Conan works. It's, I mean, for me, a pretty slight story. It is one thing I've tried to do in writing, even if it's just games for conventions, where making player interaction just a little bit easier, that all of the PCs have names that start with a different letter, yeah, or at least yeah. sound substantially different. Like having Anne and Anna in a same scenario once caused issues and kind of highlighted it to me, so I've tried to avoid it ever since. Yeah, definitely. And if there are any names that have humour attached to them, in in the wrong kind of way then like you know the players are going to pick up on that so just change it benjamin dover <laughs> yes <laughs> when i was running the meat trade for ain't slayed nobody recently well i still am but uh, this was from an episode a while back but i suddenly found myself having to improvise an npc on the spot and i went to my big list of names i unfortunately picked a name that was a bit similar to another npc name that had already been established i mean they weren't the same but it was similar enough that every time the name has come up since then the players have just complained about the similarity of the names and so it's, it's mm. really easily done if you're not careful Following Yoga's instructions, Conan takes the heart of the elephant from a nearby altar, then cuts the creature's actual heart out, soaking the blood into the jewel. He then creeps down the silver stairs to a chamber where Yara sits, dreaming, having breathed the fumes of the yellow lotus. We're getting that colour range here. Yeah, I've used the yellow lotus in some stuff I've written myself as well. I do like the idea of there just being all these different lotuses out there that have that have subtly different properties or markedly different properties in some cases, but are all sort of weird somehow. You can have the whole set. You can have red, green, blue, white, and black if you want to go the whole Magic the Gathering route. Yeah, because that's obviously where it all originated, Matt. <laughs> 
Conan lays the jewel before Yara and utters the words imparted to him. Yagkosha gives you a last gift and a last enchantment. The terrified Yara literally shrinks before Conan's eyes, running in panic and shrieking with the squeak of an insect. <laughs> this is a great little scene. Yeah. Yara is then drawn into the gem where he is pursued by a green shining winged figure with the body of a man and the head of an elephant, no longer blind or crippled. The gem bursts like a bubble, leaving no trace behind. Fleeing the tower, Conan passes the guards, finding the men all dead, apparently killed bloodlessly by Yoga to ensure his escape. That was really helpful. And outside in the garden, Conan feels like a man awakening from a dream. He looks back and sees the gleaming tower sway against the crimson dawn, its jewel-crusted rim sparkling in the growing light and crash into shining shards. He really should have grabbed that while he could. And that is the end of our tale. Yeah, so after all that running around in the tower and all this exposure to all these gems and treasures and ivory and gold and God only knows what inside, Conan goes off basically with nothing but his sword and his loincloth. I mean, he's even lost his tunic at some stage. He has ended up with less than he started with in this story. Yeah, I love that. I love that he comes away with nothing. I don't know why why that's so why that appeals to me, but just he's there just for the adventure almost. He had the jewel. He did achieve it. Nobody will believe him, I guess, but he did have it in his hand. Well, I think that's a fairly common thing in the Conan mm. stories. And I say in sword and sorcery in general, that you have these characters who are very often lured by the promise of great wealth and treasures. These things which are ultimately MacGuffins that they never really seem to get hold of, or if they do, by the time they have their next adventure, they've squandered it away or it's been stolen or something like that. And so it's this constant cycle where you have these characters who should really end up rich enough to retire and get out of the adventuring life, but, but never really do. I mean, obviously, Conan eventually does become the king of Aquilonia and does manage to consolidate wealth and power. But even then, he's constantly fighting to hold on to it. And so it's never going to be the easy life for him. Mm. Now, I've not read the adventures, the, uh, the scenarios that have been built around this for various RPGs. But if it sticks to the letter of the story, I'd be quite pissed as a player by the end of this. Mm. Because effectively, you've been put through a whole load of hoops or made to jump through hoops to get to an NPC that gives you a hell of a long exposition. Admittedly, while it is a fantastic exposition, I really like the story that the elephant tells. Essentially, it's, hey, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, do it. And then by doing it, you lose everything you came here to get. Hmm. And you end up walking away penniless. I'd be like, well, shit, that's <laughs> a really crap ending. <laughs> And also Conan fundamentally is a messenger in this. He's taking the heart. I mean, he does take some action in cutting Yoga's heart out and blooding the gem, but then he basically takes it down to Yara and lets the magic do its work. And it struck me that this is eerily paralleled by the changeling, which we discussed a little while back, where fundamentally John in it 
doesn't really do much more than be a messenger. It's not the heart that he takes along, but it's the medallion that mm. he takes along at the end. And it's just sort of, mm. oh, well, the supernatural forces will sort it all out. I'll just do my little bit and then stand back and, and watch the chaos. Yeah, we see a wondrous tale here sort of through Conan's eyes, and he does participate in it. But as you say, it's not... As a player character, it wouldn't necessarily be that great. But this is a work of fiction, not a role-playing game. And as we talked about in the episode about genre emulation, I don't think we should necessarily try to model our games too closely on this. I think we can take elements from this and yeah. make great games with them. But you're not trying to play it like the character in the story because that's a work of fiction that's a piece of literature and the other one's a, a game where you're playing a character in it that's, they're two very different things no but i guess my problem with this story i mean it's not a big problem but it is a problem i have with it is that conan spends the first half of the story being very proactive he goes from hearing about the heart of the elephant to deciding that where everyone else has failed he is going to go in he is going to be the one person to steal it he goes in doesn't spend any time planning or thinking about it just goes along clambers straight into the gardens and decides that he's going to do this and teams up with this other thief, goes in, is very, very proactive. But when it comes to the resolution of the story, he isn't proactive particularly. I mean, yes, all right, he does cut Yoga's heart out, but he is just a delivery boy, and the rest of the story is stuff that happens to him or around him. Mm. And personally, I actually find that quite unsatisfying. I mean, when we were discussing which stories to talk about, this was one of the reasons why I didn't necessarily want to discuss this one, because I don't think it's a good example of what makes the Conan stories great, which is Conan as this cunning, clever character pitting factions against each other and coming up with unexpected solutions to things and using his great knowledge and learning, which again is something you'd never think of having seen the films, that he's he solves some puzzles through his expert knowledge of ancient and dead languages and his knowledge of ancient tales and so on. He is a learned mm. man. You don't really get that in this story. Sure, if, if your exposure to Conan has been through the films, then this is probably closer to the Conan that you expect, but it's not quite the Conan that I like. I like the, the older, more mature, experienced Conan who, well, does things. Mm. So my angle on it, because I've not read much Conan, admittedly. Um, I tried to read Red Nails, but really didn't get on well with it. You read two pages of it, Matt. Yeah, no, I, I bear that up, Matt. I think I know you didn't get through all of it. I have got through all of it now, but on the second attempt. To me, I think Red Nails is the peak of Conan that well, no, I think it was the last one that Robert E. Howard wrote and I think by then he had a really great handle on the character and it does show the complexities of Conan as a character the breadth of his abilities and the fact that he is this cunning perceptive intelligent character the role that he plays in that story is a much more proactive one it's it's a story of, of intrigue and warring factions and conan has this sort of bomb dropped into the middle of it all bringing chaos and ruin that to me is everything i love about conan the bit i actually enjoyed most about the story wasn't conan it was actually just yoga and mm. particularly that long exposition that it gives saying about where it's come from what it's seen through history and when i was listening to this that's where i really actually sat up and paid attention that this stuff really grabbed me 
But everything up until that point, I'm just sitting back going, okay, this isn't really grabbing me at all. Oh, right. And it was the same kind of feeling I had with Red Nails. I just was not engaged. But it's when that more fantastic element came in that it became so rich and so evocative that I really, really enjoyed it. But yeah, I mean, I I don't know if the rest of the Coraline stories are like this. I'm They're just not my thing. Oh, man, that's fair enough. No, I mean, I, I think the bit you enjoyed isn't representative of the rest of the Conan stories. Definitely not. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'd, I'd argue with that. I think there are elements like that all the way through the Conan stories that, um, for example, in The Hour of the Dragon, there's plenty of weird bits like that where going back to the prehistory and ancient evils that are lurking around in the Hyborian Age that, yeah, I think have got strong echoes that more Lovecraftian horror. And it does crop up from time to time in the other stories. It's not the main thrust of it. They are much more adventure stories, but it's there. Mm. Those are the bits, I think, of that kind of world and these kind of story cycles that I'd be more interested in reading about. Because I think the world he's painting a picture of in those small snippets is amazing. It's just I think it's bogged down in a lot of stuff that I found quite tedious. Yeah, I mean, I think like Scott says, it's, it's here and there, but it's it's not the, the bulk of the, the stories, yeah. No, and it, and it was never meant to be. I mean, the Conan stories are primarily adventure stories. Shame he didn't write more about the, the rest of the world. In terms of what we can use for gaming here, I think um, Fritz Leiber, there's a quote I'd like to read. He says, The landscape, plan, diagram, or microcosm of each of Howard's earlier stories is as simple, limited, and complete as that of a boy's daydream, a hewn-out stage setting that can be held in the mind while the story progresses. It has no more parts than a good diagram. There is no worry at all about how it interests the real world. So I think that's good advice for our role-playing games, where we can have a setting and, you know, he describes it as complete as a boy's daydream. I think we can understand what he means there. It's something that is easily communicated and sort of born in mind you haven't got to read like pages and pages of text and have a massive monologue from the gm telling you about their world and you know do homework to sort of find out what the setting is it's deliverable in a couple of paragraphs like that paragraph we read at the start of this story you know you could have that paragraph and you know where you are you know where you are in that setting very efficiently very quickly and you can kind of bear that in mind as you play the game and more stuff is going to be developed you know the tracks are going to be laid in front of you as you kind of go through it but it's both simple but kind of rich at the same time it's a a tricky thing to capture but if you can do it then i think that's great Certainly when I've run sword and sorcery games, I've run quite a few conventions. I do try to make the point of, for those one-shot games, having a simple a premise and a setting and characters that are immediately understandable that I don't have to explain the world ahead of time. I can sort of say, right, this takes place in a walled city under siege. It's a bit like, say, early mm. medieval France, if you can picture that. Uh, the people gathered outside, if you think of them as, say, something like a Mongol horde, here are your characters, let's go. That's generally all the setup you need. And I think Sword and Sorcery is particularly good because, with rare exceptions, it doesn't have that sort of rich history and world building that it is these little pockets of development in an otherwise unmarked map that have just got the details they need in there. He does like certain phrases like blue-black beard. 
He uses this quite a lot. What the hell is a blue-black beard? I mean, I've not heard anybody else use the phrase, but he used it quite a few times, and he used it in this story as well. But blue-black is a hair colour. I used to dye my hair blue-black when I was young. Did you? Yeah, it's basically exactly as it says. And if you think of Superman's hair from the comics, that is the classic blue-black colour. It's a sort of shade of black hair that white people don't normally have. In fact, people in general don't normally have that it is just so absolutely black that it's almost tinged with very dark blue. It's sort of the the classic goth hair colour. Well, fair enough. But yeah, it's not one I'd encountered. And it's just that he uses certain phrases like some people have commented that he did this from haste that it sort of repeats certain phrases without necessarily realizing it whether that's the case or not i'm not sure when somebody moves stealthily it's always panther like mm. there's always giant snakes and blue black beards and i don't know kind of typifies his his writing it's primarily conan himself when conan's described as being an action as moving as fighting and so on Howard will usually reach for similes relating Conan to some variety of big cat. It's usually pantherish, but sometimes tigers. I'm sure he's gone for other ones. But yeah, Conan is always compared to a big cat. Mm. That very much shapes how I imagine the character. And again, there is nothing cat-like about our. Oh my God, here we go again. <laughs> there isn't. No, but you're talking about panther-like grace. I think it's something that's moving quietly. But also fluidly and swiftly mm. and so on, and not lumbering. I'm kind of picturing Arnie as a goth now with lots of eyeliner, lots of much darker hair. The other thing that keeps coming up in descriptions of Conan throughout the stories, I think it even comes up in this story in passing, the number of times that Howard will describe Conan's skin as being brown or bronzed or whatever, and then hastily put in some notes and sort of say, yeah, yeah, but it's a suntan. It's He's from the really, sun. really white yes. underneath. Yeah. Yes, yes. Aye, aye, aye. This reminds me of my dad, who uh, was a farmer and would be out in all weathers, and he'd have a farmer's tan. So that would mean on his chest, where he wore a shirt, he would be as white as white, but his forearms and his face would be suntan chestnut brown in the summer. But he would always wear a cap, a farmer's cap. But obviously at my sister's wedding, it was the height of summer, and he didn't have a hat on. So when you look at the pictures, you're like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Wait a minute, because <laughs> there's like literally this line above his eyebrows and it's all chestnut brown below that where he's suntanned and above that, pure white. <laughs> it's just such a weird thing. Did nobody notice that at the time? I was too young to remember it, but uh, it just looks so strange. But yeah, you're right, Scott, I noticed that. And, and there's so many things. I was listening to um, that story, Red Nails as well. And He's constantly referring to skin colour. If it's a damsel in distress, then her skin is milky white. Or, you know, there's so many references to skin colour and, you know, some, uh, you know, in his mind, you know, what that means kind of bleeds through onto the page a lot. Yeah. As you go through the Conan stories, most of the time it's there as background noise but sometimes it really comes to the forefront yeah there's one particular story i think it's man eaters of zambula which 
it's been a long time since I've read that, but I've reread a few of the Conan stories recently. I've deliberately avoided that one. But that, it reads like racist propaganda, basically. Mm. There is this white woman who has become a slave of these dark-skinned people, these sort of analog oh, yeah, yeah. sub-Saharan African people. This, by the very nature of it, offends Conan's sensibilities, and by the end of it, he's pretty much slaughtered everyone responsible for it, despite the fact that in other stories he's quite happily accepted slavery as part of uh, the society. But in this mm. case, because it's a white woman being enslaved by dark-skinned people, this is against nature and therefore is a crime that must be avenged. When I read that story, I happily it was one of the last Conan stories I read. If that had been the first one I'd been exposed to, I might not have read any more. Hmm. Yeah, that does sound like a, a nail in the coffin of enjoyment right there. Mm. I had the pleasure of playing uh, Barbarians of Lemuria recently. Yeah, that, that, I thought that was a good sword and sorcery style game. One of the things I liked was that it was a kind of 2D6 type system. We were having a chase that sort of started off very dramatically. It kind of moved from one action scene to the next. I'm not sure if that was just the way uh, Neil sort of designed the, the scenario or whether that's down to the system, I don't know. But if you roll double one, it's a botch or a fumble. But it's kind of up to you. So that is put into the player's hands. Do you want to accept like a dramatic failure here? Or do you just want to say you failed? And if you accept a dramatic failure, you get a hero point. And with the hero points, he had these cards printed with like kind of like playing cards. And on the back, it kind of gave you a menu of things you can do with the, with the hero points, which was good for a convention game. It's the usual kind of things you can do with these kind of hero points, but they were, they were listed out. Yeah, you had about five for the game. And they, they allowed you to do kind of pulpy action things, you know, and achieve. And uh yeah, it was, it was a fun game, I must say, moving from one action scene to another. And I don't think any of us actually had magic, but, you know, at the end we do meet this kind of sorcerer-priest figure, very much like we see in, in the Conan Tales. And we are kind of face down against this magic-using uh, NPC and almost a TPK, but not quite. It's interesting. As I mentioned, I've run a lot of sword and sorcery games at conventions and at the club and so on. I don't tend to have, I guess, that many action scenes in them. I mean, obviously, I have action scenes in them because it's sword and sorcery. Mm. But for a convention game, I'll tend to count on there perhaps being a big climactic action scene and maybe one or two on the way there. But I'm also much more interested in the intriguing character interactions and general weirdness of the setting. I do love the action scenes when they come up, but in a sword and sorcery game, there are a little bit of seasoning that I drop in from time to time rather than the backbone of the game. Oh no, this felt more like um a bit like Pop Cthulhu, where when we were writing um Two Headed Serpent kind of realized that oh this is mm. you know, a lot of the structure of this is is moving from one kind of set piece scene to another. You know, you need those sort of big set piece action scenes. As we see in, you know, Indiana Jones or whatever, those those kind of mm. uh, pulp uh, action films i mean you did get the setting really richly i mean there was one moment where we were kind of climbing a tower to you know, like a, a pillar out in the desert with this guy who was kind of imprisoned up on the tower and we were attacked by these pterodactyl type things and uh yeah no, that was a great scene yeah that was a lot of fun you're listening to the good friends of jackson elias you can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. 
We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, I would like to ask you if you are enjoying the podcast, this episode or other episodes, or, well, preferably all the episodes, we would absolutely love it if you told other people about it. The good word of Jackson Elias needs to find as many ears as possible, like a sleepy earwig. It needs somewhere to nestle. So if you can tell people you think would enjoy it on social media, in person, by entering into their dreams and just planting the suggestion there while they sleep, we're not fussy. But however you do it, we would be very, very grateful. Well, that wraps up our uh, several episodes looking at all things Conan and Howard and sword and sorcery. And next time we're moving on to new grounds or maybe back to old ones. So until then, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.